Hi friends, this is W speaking to you from the future. I wanted to add a brief disclaimer to older episodes. So here is the disclaimer. My spirituality has matured and grown over the course of this podcast, and it will continue to grow and mature. Therefore, there may be some rituals, concepts, or topics that I discuss in these early episodes that I might not personally follow or endorse any longer. If you do want a glimpse at what I personally believe now and what I learned in this first year of podcasting, check out a series of episodes called Reflections that came out at the end of 2022. However, despite my uneasiness about some of my past content, I've decided to still keep all of my old episodes up, because while they may not mesh with my current point of view any longer, from an educational standpoint, I think these topics are still interesting, even if it's just for entertainment or for general knowledge. No matter if they mesh with my own POV now, these are concepts and things that exist. So... I still think from an entertainment and an educational standpoint, they're fun, interesting concepts, as long as we approach them with discernment. Regardless, I hope you do enjoy this episode, and I invite you to listen to my reflection series to see where this path ultimately led me. God bless you. Hey, listeners. Today's episode is another listener Q&A episode, and it is a doozy. It's a long one but I had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, So I apologize in advance for a very long episode. Usually I try to keep all my episodes under an hour and a half, uh, but this is almost two and a half hours. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put timestamps in the description so you can jump around if you'd like. Uh, Nonetheless, thank you so much for all of your amazing questions. That's why the episode is so long. I appreciate all of your support and I appreciate each and every one of you. We talk about demons again. We talk about some great saints, some really spooky saints. We talk about animal saints. We talk about what you can and cannot bless on your own. We also give some clarity on past episodes, such as how to best connect with a saint, as well as some more clarity on justice, baneful, and curse type work. Thank you for your ears. Thank you for your time. And thank you for being you. Enjoy. Peace be with you and with your spirit. Welcome to another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue. I am your host, W. And today is another listener Q&A episode, one of my favorites of the month, because I don't have to worry about writing. I don't have to worry about finding new music or new angles. I just get to answer questions that you all send in. So these are always a real treat for me. And thank you to everyone who has been sending in questions through Instagram messages, through Patreon messages, um, through Instagram stories. Thank you for all of your participation. And of course, all of your support. Uh, The podcast has grown incredibly quickly, nearing 10,000 streams in under three months, and my mind is absolutely blown, and my heart is very, very full, just due to the community and all of your friendship, fellowship, and just genuine support, so I thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. And also thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast through 
Patreon. If you are interested in joining, the link is in the description here. It is also on my Instagram bio. And I'm very excited about the Patreon. We're just getting rolling, but there's also an incredible community there. Certain tiers get monthly gifts, uh, tarot readings, and all tiers get lots of bonus content. So that's bonus episodes, that's written out prayers. I have my holy water blessing on there. And we're actually about to do a four-week series on meditation. And I'm going to have a kind of a, a folk magic spin on the meditation practices. So I'm looking forward to that. So if you are interested in supporting as well as all of the perks that come with it, please check out the Patreon. All right, now that the overt self-promotion is over, this has been a really fun January. So we started off January talking about St. Joseph, and that was a lot of fun. Um, he is still one of my favorite saints. He's one of the saints I work with the most. And I also think even though the church declared 2020 year of St. Joseph, I still think he's an underappreciated figure in folk magic. So check him out. Check the episode out and learn to form a relationship with St. Joseph. He is an incredible saint to work with, and folklore and religious teaching says that he has such a special relationship with Jesus and Mary. So if you go to Joseph for something, for a petition, it's more likely that Jesus is going to listen to Joseph working on your behalf. And then we followed that up with an episode on Our Lady of Sorrows, which was my personal favorite episode that we have put out to date. It had a special place to me and my spirituality and my approach to this practice. And you guys seem to really enjoy it as well. So of course that boosts it up on my list too. We talk about the importance of working with an individual, a being that has an understanding of human emotion. We talked about Our Lady of Sorrows as a protector as someone who can soften the heart of others, also someone who can make us more compassionate. Um, so it was an incredible episode to present to you. So check that one out if you haven't. And then just last week we dropped Cursing Psalms, which were my entry point to psalm work. Uh, reading the imprecatory psalms, or what they're called, uh, was really what opened my eyes to the power of the psalms. While I may not use psalms like Psalm 109, which declares that your enemy's wife become a widow, <laughs> uh, there are still some great imprecatory or cursing psalms that can be used for binding reversals and things like that. Um, we're going to talk more about that in this episode too. So check that one out as well. So we've had Joseph, Our Lady of Sorrows, and the cursing psalms this month, and we are rounding it out with this listener Q&A. And now that we are seeing this catalog of episodes, this library of episodes, we have about 20 or so under our belt right now. That also gives me the opportunity to reflect on what we've talked about before and what I can bring up now to clarify. Also things that I may have learned in my personal practice that I think may be helpful to you. So there are some things I want to talk about just on past episodes that I think will bring more clarity to you guys. So let's start. Let's start with the episode that just came out last week, which was the Cursing Psalms, which I just talked about. So I kind of wish that I did an episode on binding and I did an episode on reversals before I did the episode on Cursing Psalms. 
I lumped them all together because technically they are all lumped together under the title of imprecatory psalms. So I was following what they are, which is really psalms to use against an enemy, whether that is a curse, a hex, a bind, or what I would call justice work. They're all lumped together, but I don't know if that's really helpful to lump them together because they are all very different. And I'm also consistently towing the line with this podcast between folkloric practices and folkloric traditions and here are things from more of an anthropological standpoint versus here are things that I do in my personal practice or things that I know that other practitioners are doing. So folkloric perspective, lump them all together. Personal practice perspective, don't lump them all together. And, and here's kind of why. So first, let's talk about the three kinds. First is binding. So binding is what it sounds like. You are using a psalm, or you can use this in a general magic standpoint, a spell, whatever, to stop someone from harming you. That is a bind. Then, and, and that's basically the protection work that we're all familiar with. You can call it protection, you can call it binding. Most of the time it's the same thing. I guess you could say protection work is, is the umbrella in which binding could fall under. You could also have something like invisibility type work where you are less seen towards an enemy. A lot of different pathways you can go down there. But binding basically is what it sounds like. It is binding your enemies. When we talk about St. Peter in the St. Peter episode, we talk about how Peter can use his keys to bind your enemies, chain up your enemies. So he's not harming them, he's not hurting them, he is stopping them. So that's a bind, and that's common. And then there's a gray area, which you're gonna see it more in hoodoo, and it's called justice work, or justice magic. And that is when you want someone to pay for the things that they have done to you. And there is gray area where if that is baneful or not. And to me personally, the gray area comes when how specific you want to get. So um, for me, I would I would close a binding prayer with maybe a little bit of justice in there. So I would close a binding psalm, a binding prayer, a binding spell by saying something along the lines of, in God, if you feel as if they need to pay for what they've done, please do with them as you deem fit. Something like that. Now that's a little more justice work. And of course, if it's a little more dark, if you want to say something like, make them get in a car wreck, mm, now it's kind of more baneful. But basically, justice magic can be what you want it to be. And sometimes the justice part happens anyway. So sometimes you might bind someone and then they have to pay for what they've, they've done. And that can take many forms. Sometimes justice could be them seeing the error of their ways and they come to apologize to you. Or justice could be, maybe it's in a professional setting where they have to now come off of their high horse and they need to come to you for help. So it could be something like that. Or yes, it could be something a little more extreme. But justice magic can be kind of middle path. It can be the gray area. If you're leaving the sentence up to the divine on how they want to handle it. And then a curse, though, is I just want this person to suffer, which most of the time, yes, is a form of baneful work. And psalms can be all three. You can also have one psalm, like Psalm 109, where different verses can be something that you can use for binding. There might be another verse that's more of a curse. There might be another verse that's more 
of like a justice type working. So you can kind of pick and choose and if, if I am doing something like this, I'm going to probably choose the verse that's more about reversals or binding. I didn't mention reversals, but that's self-explanatory. That is someone is, is throwing something your way, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and you want it to go back to them or to just bounce off of you. So Psalms can be used for all of it. And I'm bringing this up because after I posted that, um, I also did a quick Instagram reel and a TikTok about using Psalm 109 to curse people. And again, I, I kind of have to toe the line between folklore and my personal practice. That was a folkloric practice that comes from hoodoo that I found in a uh, Psalm magic book that has hoodoo influences. So something like that, you're probably gonna use it in more of, the, of a baneful way, honestly, or a justice magic way. But also if you check out that reel that I posted on my Instagram, you have a choice of verses. So I would probably choose the reversal verse rather than the baneful verse or the cursing verse. Uh, 109 is an example. In, in the reel, actually, I choose verse 17, which is something along the lines of, since my enemy loved cursing, may those curses go back to him. And since he never gave blessings, may any blessing be far from him. So that's more of a reversal. However, there's a lot of lines in that in that psalm, if you're familiar with Psalm 109. Um, you know, may his children be fatherless, may his wife become a widow, and may his children have to beg in the streets for food. You know, I could have said that, and that would have been a little more, a little more spicy, a little more painful. So I posted that reel and I got a lot of people messaging me and they're like, hey, can I use this for blank situation? And the answer is yes, but most of the situations that they asked, I would recommend no. Most of the situations that people came with were some kind of family dispute, um, some kind of disagreement with a friend or a lot of in-laws. A lot of you guys are struggling with in-laws right now. And yes, you could definitely use that, but it would not be my go-to. So I would not use a cursing psalm or a really baneful psalm for something of that caliber. There needs to be a process before you really jump any, into any type of spicy work at all. So let's say you are having a disagreement with an in-law, with a relative, or with just someone, a landlord, a coworker, a boss. So what's the first thing you should do? Should you bind them? Let's say they treated you wrong. Should you do justice work so they can see the error of their ways? Should you curse them? No, you should talk to them. <laughs> you should communicate with them. You should tell them how you feel. Speak to them like a human being first. And yes, most of the people that came with me with issues, I'm sure that that step has already been handled. They've already had the conversations or else they feel like they wouldn't need to go to God or magic to get what they need. But I have to bring that up because I find that many people use mystical and spirituality and spiritual practices and magic because they are too scared to confront their issues head on. And spirit does not like working with cowards. There's no light way to say that. First, handle everything you can in the physical, temporal realm. It's the same thing about job spells, right? Like you can't just cast a job spell when you haven't put out any resumes. So step one, before you do magic, is try to work through the situation with the person. 
And before I even kind of get into binding, I would pray. We don't like talking about prayer a lot in the magic space because it brings up church, it brings up religion, and we're all battling with that. But guess what? Talk to the divine. Whatever form you see the divine in, do it. Um, the Our Lady of Sorrows episode, specifically, we discuss softening the heart of others. Maybe this person needs their heart softened so they can see what they are doing to you. And then, yeah, I'd probably, if, they're, if they're still having issues, yes, I would do some kind of bind. I'm not sure if I would do a psalm bind. I might put them in the freezer, something like that. There's, there's various binding spells and rituals before you get to the spicy stuff. And then, yeah, then I might, I might find a psalm that I would consider binding, um, especially if they were being very wicked to you. And then, you know, Justice Magic, again, it's, it's harder to find. There is a book out there, um, Hoodoo Justice Magic. I talked about it in my live stream um, this week. Justice Magic's harder to find because sometimes it can be a bind. Um, sometimes bind can be Justice Magic. But if you find a psalm where it speaks to God is basically asking, you're basically asking God so that someone can see the error of their ways or, you know, how long will the wicked triumph? They're opening their, their tongues and their mouths of deceit against me, God, please make it stop. That could be a bind, that could be justice work, whatever it is. So I would go there next and personally me, I would not go to more of the baneful, wicked, spicy cursing stuff. I would never, I could never see myself doing a psalm where I'm asking, um, for my enemy's children to be homeless. I just could not see myself doing it. And I recommend you don't either. <laughs> However, uh, when I do stuff like that, it's a lot of it is coming from a place of folkloric research and practice. And 109 is very folkloric in the hoodoo and Southern Conjure worlds. So if you are dealing with an issue with someone, I first recommend talking to them and then doing some kind of protection, some kind of binding work, and then you know do what you can from there. So, did want to clear that up, and we'll we'll do an episode or at least some bonus content on binds, on protection uh, when it comes with an individual. But please, talk to one another, speak to one another. I feel like I'm gonna get on my soapbox briefly. We see that a lot. In spirituality, um, we see it a lot. I see it all the time online. It's like, you know, I I don't like being around these people because they believe in different things than me. What crystal can I carry around? <laughs> oh, you need to find out why you have that blockage. Why are you so uncomfortable being around someone who has a different belief than you? believes different things than you, that sees things differently than you. And yes, it very well could be because their beliefs are bigoted. Very, very, very possible. Especially today in today's climate. I get it. But a part of spirituality is working on yourself. And you can't always be reliant on magic as a crutch for personal and individual relationships. So... If you're having a problem with someone first, please, for the love of God, talk to them. Try to work it out together. Tell them how you feel. And if they're coming for you, physically, spiritually, deal with it how you can. Protect yourself in the physical world, how you want to, how you deem fit. 
protect yourself spiritually as you deem fit. I've also been reflecting on some of the basics. Again, um, I, I did the intro to Saint Magic and the Folk Magic Essentials episodes months and months ago, and they're all very valid. I stand by all of it, but there is a point of clarification that I want to talk about, and that is connecting with a saint. How do you form and build a relationship with a saint? And I think it's always good to, to go over this kind of stuff again. I still hold my original philosophy true. However, I want to give some more color around it. So how can I connect with a saint before working with them? Do I need to connect it with a saint before working with them? How do I do it? And there still is two camps. One camp, go for it, jump right in. Second camp is that you need to spend a few weeks getting to know this saint before you even begin to petition them for something. My suggestion was always and is still the middle path, go down the middle. So yes, research your saint. Get to know your saint through research and preparing to work with them. And that could be a few days, that could be a few weeks. But my point in that episode, and it still is, is that you always don't have a few weeks. Sometimes you need to work with a saint and you got a few days. You need money and bills are due. Somebody's coming after you. You interviewed for a job unexpectedly and you want to get it. You don't, you don't always have three weeks. So sometimes you have to kind of jump in. But my point is the time you spent researching for that novena is a way that you are psychically and spiritually connecting with that saint. So it kind of happens. Um, however, I do want to talk about the importance of spending a few weeks with a saint getting to know them. Um, and it's simply because if you ask someone for something that doesn't know you at all, they're probably not going to give it to you. You have to form a relationship before that person is willing to do something for you, especially even if that person is a spirit and you're asking them to go talk to Jesus and God for you, you're going to want to connect with them over time. You're going to want to get to know them as well first before you ask them for something. And you're going to want to build a relationship that's ongoing where you're not just asking for stuff all the time. And it doesn't have to be very intense, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's very important, too, when you don't need anything, to start connecting with that saint now. So when you do need them, you have that relationship. So how do you do that? A lot of people in Catholic mysticism and folklore will say three weeks of somehow connecting with a saint. And it does not have to be very intense. It's recommended to simply offer a glass of water to a picture of that saint every morning and say a prayer. Um, saint so-and-so, we'll do Anthony. Saint Anthony, I'm bringing you a glass of water that it may help quench your thirst as this water is a gift from God. Your presence in my life would also be a gift from God. Please be with me, Saint Joseph. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy the water. So it could be something as simple as that. And then, yeah, maybe read some articles on him. Read some prayers. Read some novenas. And then as time goes on, sit in front of a candle with their picture in front of it. Uh, meditate on it. Um, start doing path working where you're imagining yourself having a conversation with this saint. Try to start feeling their energy. Um, and do that every day, five minutes, ten minutes, for three weeks or so, until you feel as if you know this saint. 
research them, study them. Um, I had a very powerful St. Benedict Novena going on. And I did not do that. I didn't sit in front of a candle or make him any offerings, but I probably spent three weeks reading a book about his life, um, reading all of his prayers, writing down his novenas. I didn't have a printer and I didn't want my computer up while I was doing my novenas. So I hand wrote out nine novena prayers. So I probably spent three or so weeks just researching him, which to me, I felt like that was me spiritually and psychically connecting with him. But moving forward, if I if there's a saint I want to get to know, I get to know them through a saint card, a candle, and a small offering. And also, yeah, there, there could be an audiobook about their life, a podcast, wink, wink, about their life and story. So do that. So, yes, um, I still think you don't always need super intensive workings or sessions before you do a novena or some kind of prayer, but it does help. So if you don't need anything right now, but there's a certain saint that you've been wanting to know more about, wanting to work with in the future because they might be of assistance down the line, start working with them now to connect with their energy. And also keep that up and it can be very small. When I do my rosary, I'll talk to all of my saints on, on the altar, all of them, just all of them one by one, five minutes, 10 minutes. Something as simple as that, because you don't wanna be that friend that only asks for things. You wanna to get to know them, ask them questions, get a vibe for who they are too. Um, and that sounds so crazy. It sounds so woo woo. But certain saints, you can even kind of find out what kind of relationship do you want? Do you only want me to come to you when I need something? Or do you want me to make you offerings once a week or every now and then once a month? Um, and that's kind of a vibe you'll get. And that sounds weird, but it's true. And you'll feel it and you'll know when you do. For me, St. Anthony, every time I'm sitting at my altar, there's just this pull towards looking at his statue and saying a prayer to him. Meanwhile, Benedict and Peter, a little more business, a little more serious. And that's just me and that's how the spirit speaks to me. It's gonna speak to you differently. So I did wanna make that clarification because I don't want it to seem like saint work should not be developing a relationship with that saint. And there might be a saint where you just need them for a certain thing because it's something very specific. There's some saints that have powers to heal very unique ailments. So you might only reach out to them when you have a certain ailment. And that is okay as well, as long as you did that connection with them at, at some point in time. But I did want to kind of make the point that there is a lot of benefit to working with saints, praying with saints, and starting to form a relationship with saints, even when you don't want things. So when you do do a novena and petition them, it'll be much more powerful. All right, let's jump into listener questions. Again, thank you to everyone who asked me a question this month. A lot of great ones as usual. The first one came from more of a conversation I had with someone on Instagram and messages. Um, however, I think that the topic can be fitting for everyone. It was a great question, so I want to share it. And the question was this. I know that you mentioned that you can work with saints if you aren't Catholic, but what about if you aren't Christian? I want to work with the saints for their characteristics, but I do not want to work with God or his son Jesus. And then the question goes on. Will God be offended, especially if you also work with pagan gods? 
because of course in the New Testament, Old Testament, you have themes of only following the one true God, Yahweh. So I want to unpack this in a few ways. Let's start with the first line. So I really like this question because it kind of uncovers a lot. So the first line, can you work with the saints if you aren't Christian? Yes, absolutely. There are plenty of people who have venerations to Mary. Um, you have a lot of venerations to St. Jude, to Expedite, to plenty of folks, and you'll see them on altars of people who do not identify as Christians. There is some ideas and suggestions about syncretism. This is a spirit of something else, but they are hiding behind the mask of St. Peter, St. Jude, Our Lady, what have you. But it is common. Um, saints are still helpful spirits that you can reach out to in times of trouble, and they will assist any of you because they would never disown or turn down someone for help in the material world when they were alive just because they weren't Catholic or Christian. So they certainly wouldn't do that in the spiritual world. But here's where things get a little complicated. So if you don't want to work with God or his son Jesus, but you do want to work with the saints, there are times when the saints are just petitioning on your behalf to Jesus or God. So you can say that you're working with the saints and not Jesus or God, but the saints are petitioning to Jesus and God on your behalf. So indirectly, without you knowing it, you might still be working with Jesus and God. And the second part, will God be upset or mad? No, God would not be upset or mad that his child is asking for help in a way that they feel the most comfortable in doing. Period. And let's say that you were once a practicing Catholic or a practicing Christian, or that you have heard the quote-unquote good news, but you were turned away from that because Christians, Catholics, Protestants, were just evil. They just put a bad taste in your mouth. And because of them, you were turned away from Jesus and God. Would God hold you accountable? Or would God hold the Christians accountable for doing a bad job of showcasing who they are to you? I don't know. I can't speak for God, but I can speak for Vatican II. I can speak for Vatican II and the document. It's in a red book sitting on my desk right now. And that document would say that even the non-believer who through no fault of their own does not conclude that Christ is the only Savior can still be saved. And if you look at the paragraph before that, it says that one of the ways that people are faulted in not finding God or finding Jesus is because Christians often do a poor job in showcasing the love of God and Jesus and it scares people away. So it's not your fault. So that tying that back to the question, will God be mad that you want to work with another deity but still ask the saints for help? No. But don't be surprised if eventually you want to pick up that rosary. <laughs> don't be surprised if eventually you want to go to mass to see what it's like because you haven't been in a while. Don't be surprised if you start reading up on Jesus a little bit. It might happen. And that's okay. Also from a 
theological folkloric perspective, there is actually the belief that, not the belief, it's, it's in scripture that there is this thing called the divine council. And on the divine council sits what we now call angels, but angels is a umbrella term for any kind of spiritual otherworldly being. So there are some people that believe that at God's council, you have Greek gods, Roman gods, all of these people that were messengers of Yahweh. They work under Yahweh. And there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, but so there have been people who, neo-pagans in modern times, who have prayed to a pagan god, and then eventually they got a message that now it's time for you to pray to my god, Yahweh. So there's a lot to really unpack there if you really want to go down that path. But short answer, there's nothing wrong with that. No one's going to be mad at you. Yes, that is against scripture if you want to interpret that scripture in certain ways, but you can interpret scripture in other ways as well. You know, no one gets into heaven or no one meets the Father unless through me. Through me meaning my ways, my yoke, my teachings, which is love your neighbor as you love yourself and love God with all your heart. So there's a lot of ways to really interpret, unpack those scriptures. Put a large theme in my podcast, in my work, if you want to call it that, is I'm urging you to find out on your own. I'm urging you to not be so ingrained in scripture and dogma and theology. It's important. It's important. But what's more important is you sitting down in front of your altar. More important is you talking to God. What's more important is you feeling those energies and establishing a personal relationship, a personal perspective, a personal gnosis with these energies and spirits. And I think you will like what you find. I think you will be impressed. I think you will feel refreshed. I think you will encounter Christ, saints, Mary, and even Yahweh in ways that might seem very different from what you were taught in a church behind church doors. And what's funny is actually sometimes it's not that different. It's, it's sometimes what the people behind those church doors were telling you. But different countries, different areas would have given you different perspectives. But nonetheless, establish a relationship with those saints. Establish a relationship with those saints later, if you want, put Mary on that altar too. And then you can find out what Christ is, what God is, and what the saints are, not under the umbrella of a church, but in your own heart, in your own conscience. And as Saint Cardinal Newman would say, the conscience is the original vicar of Christ, that you can always give a toast to the Pope, but the true Pope is your conscience. That's the Holy Spirit. So have fun on your journey and God bless you. All right, the next question we have. Under the presupposition that we're all God's children and he loves us, why do you think that the saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary would deign to work or be involved in any sort of malfeasium against another child of God, whether the work is justified or not? So if we are all 
God's children, why would a saint, the Blessed Virgin Mary, or God want to harm or do something negative or harmful to one of their children? First off, I cannot answer that because I am not God, I am not the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I am not a saint by any means. I think the first the response comes in the form of, doesn't a parent sometimes have to punish a child? And when we talk about things like justice work, when we talk about things like protection or reversals where we're sending negativity back to someone that was negative, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, it's not always physical harm. Sometimes it can be harm to their ego. Sometimes it could be harm to a situation, but not always physical. Um, sometimes, like I said before, sometimes justice work is someone having their ego hurt because they have to apologize. Or if it's a career or work situation, it's justice because now they have to work on that project with you and now you have to be the leader in that project. So they had to come off their high horse. So it's not always harm when you're asking for something like that. But let's say it is. First off, that is up to God to do it, not to me. That's why earlier in the episode, when I mentioned justice work, I say things along the lines of, may God do as you deem fit. May the Virgin Mary, may you do as you deem fit. It's not up to me. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you to break somebody's legs. <laughs> but you also have a theme of the greater good and a lot of spiritual workings, a lot of religious texts and theology. So... The Archangel Michael, Blessed Virgin Mary, God, the saints, they might see that person being harmed or hurt to somehow play a larger role in the greater good. So I unfortunately cannot answer why God would be willing to assist in things like this. And there might be wiggle room there. You know, maybe they are not as involved as we think from personal experience and personal workings and things that might be a little spicy, that might be gray area, middle path, but more leaning towards the left-hand path. When I do stuff like that, the result that the person got is not always like life destruction type stuff. Sometimes it's just them coming off their high horse. Will God do worse things? Yes. Why? Not sure. The only answer I have is maybe they think they deserved it. All right, guys, in the next series of questions, we're about demons. Again, <laughs> we talked about demons the last listener Q&A. I do recommend you check out that listener Q&A to see what I had to say about working with demons. That question was more, do I feel like demons are misunderstood? This question, these questions were, can I work with demons? What is the, uh, can you talk about using a devil, the devil in folk magic or Italian folk magic? And what is the role of the folkloric devil in folk magic? So we're, we're still on the devil train as much as, as much as I try, as much as I try to cast the demons out from all of you. We had a whole exorcism episode guys, where I performed an exorcism on my listeners, but it did not work. The demons are still around you. I'm kidding. All right, let's talk about demons again. And this is a different question than before because it brings up the role of, of demons and the devil in folklore. So let's talk about folklore. I know that when I think of 
folk magic and the devil, the first thing I personally think of is hoodoo going down to the crossroads, right? You think of Robert Johnson, who was a blues artist that, that sold his soul allegedly to the devil to be better at guitar, right? He went down to the crossroads to do that, to sign a pact with the devil. And then you've seen that theme come up in various other forms of Southern Conjure. And you might think that that has some kind of Faustinian influence, but actually it does not. So where from my research, this is other, other people may disagree, people with more degrees than I have. From my research, the story, at least in Hoodoo, of going down to the crossroads to sell your soul or make a pact not sell your soul, make a pact, comes from crossroad spirits. So you would have Papa Legba or Ishua Legba, who were crossroad spirits, who were called trickster spirits. And you could make deals with them, petition them at the crossroads, make a deal with them to get what you want. So what happened was when European anthropologists would try to learn about these practices you have it in voodoo as well as hoodoo. They would say that Papa Legba or Ishua Legba, uh, depending on if it's voodoo or hoodoo, these are trickster spirits. And the, the white folks were like, oh, so what, like the devil? And they were like, no, Papa Legba is not the devil. It's a trickster spirit. And they could just not wrap their heads around that this isn't a harmful being it's just kind of a mischievous being so what happened when the story stories like going to the crossroads to make a deal with the devil really started out as going to the crossroads and making a deal with a trickster spirit but colonization and european uh influences changed trickster spirit just to devil so you have, at least from a lot of Southern Conjure and Hoodoo, from a folkloric standpoint, you have people going to the crossroads now to make a deal with the devil, but originally that was going to the crossroads to make a deal with a trickster spirit. And you also have that in Mexican folk magic, where some areas, their version of the devil is not Satan, but it's kind of a devil and it's a more mischievous trickster spirit. You also have trickster spirits in indigenous American peoples and their religions. And you also have it in Italian cultures and European cultures as well. Uh, but namely, you see that in um, kind of the diaspora um, in the time of the slave trade and things of that nature. So you start seeing more trickster spirits and eventually trickster spirits became devils or demons. And now, if you want to get into the Catholic view of demons, you have to look pre-Council of Trent. So we're going back to the medieval times here. So pre-Council of Trent, if you look at medieval exorcism manuals, because, you know, you have those laying around, but if you... <laughs> If you look at medieval exorcism manuals, you're going to see that pre-Council of Trent, you would perform exorcisms on a variety of spirits. It wasn't just demons. You would perform an exorcism because someone was possessed by a dragon, by a troll, by an elf, by an ancestor, a, a malicious ancestor, um, things like that. So 
exorcisms and spirits, you could interact with various spirits. You could interact with nature spirits. That was another exorcism. You would have exorcisms because you were possessed by a nature spirit of some kind that was malicious. Um, so pre-Council of Trent, it was believed that you could be influenced by various spirits. Demons existed. Demons were in that category, but it wasn't just demons. Council of Trent, though, said anything that is not an angel or God is a demon. We're going to categorize it all as demons. So as religion grew, as Catholicism grew, which became Protestantism, which became all that it is now, demons were just kind of put into one single category. So it's very possible that you could work with a nature spirit, that you could work with a, a dragon spirit or a troll or elf spirit. There are other spirits you can work with other than angels, other than saints, other than divine, um, that the church may have taught you as a demon, but it's not really a demon. But here's the issue. Some of them are demons. So how do you know if it is or it isn't? And there's discernment there. But is it worth it? And that's what I talked about in my last Q&A. I gave the example of my family having this big old, I can't remember if it was a Bronco or a Blazer. I know we had both. Let's say it was a Bronco. I believe it, we've, we've had both and they were both used for the same thing. So the story still uh, holds true and it's not that big of a plot point. Anyway, we had this big lifted vehicle which I could pretty much stand up underneath. We would take it mudding because I'm a, I'm a good old Mississippi boy. So I remember I was playing under it as a kid and I could pretty much stand up underneath it. So I asked my parents, hey, if this car came at me and I was very still in between all four, four tires, would I still get hurt? And they were like, yes, absolutely 100%, never be under a car ever, please because they're not going to tell their nine, 10 year old kid who is bad that, yeah, you could be under a moving car if you stay really still and you're not wearing loose, loose clothing so it doesn't like pick you up and drag you and flay you alive. If you're at the right angle, you could probably live. They're not going to tell me that. If there's even a chance that I'm going to hurt myself, they're just going to say, no, never, ever, ever be under a car. And I feel like that was kind of the church's intent with some kind of spirit work rather than telling people you know yes there are other spirits that exist that can be of assistance to you in this world and you can connect with them and work with them since they knew though that also there are malicious spirits they're just going to tell you to not work with any of them ever as a means of protection never be under the car never work with anything that's not an angel or God or Jesus. And I think it was well intended, but I think that it limits our view on spirits, on the afterlife, on the spiritual realm in general. But if you are asking about working with a literal demon who prowls the world trying to steal souls and not a nature spirit who is neutral, um, if you are asking to work with an actual malicious demon. <laughs> I mean, can you? Sure, should you? No, you shouldn't. Um, and I also talk a, a little bit about like Solomonic magic and grimoire magic in that last listener Q&A, you can check it out uh, because you do have that there. 
But my question is, at least from a folk magic that, that leans very heavily into saints and Catholicism, my question is, why would you want to work with a demon when you can get a lot of those benefits and a lot of those same graces from working with the saints, Mary, Jesus, and God? Pretty much the same stuff. And like we've learned lately, a lot of people say, oh, well, I want to work with them for some baneful stuff. And then I ask what kind of painful stuff, and it's usually protection, and the saints are incredible for that. So can you work with demons? I suppose, but I wouldn't recommend it. Instead, I would recommend you work with a saint. I would recommend you work with the, the Blessed Virgin Mary and God. The demonic is real. The demonic is subtle. The demonic is something that can harm you. And the thing about the demonic too is that possession is what most people are familiar with, but possession is not the only way that the demonic manifests itself. The demonic manifests itself through vexation, infestation, oppression, obsession, and possession. So I'll save walking through all of those out for our own episode on exorcisms and spiritual deliverance and stuff like that. But things like obsession would be a demon or a demonic entity, a negative force working against you. So you obsess over the wrong thing in a situation that you obsess over something that leads to doubt, that leads to anxiety, that pushes you away from a certain path that might be the path that the divine wants you to go upon. Um, infestation could be that the demon is following you around and, and hurting or harming others around you so that it will ultimately affect you but you won't know any know any better because you think it's the other person just being a certain way to you and there's a lot of caveats there so be careful and to me i just simply would not risk it there are grimoirek and more occult and more Solomonic magic practitioners out there if you are interested in that. However, from my own experience, even friends that do have a ceremonial and grimoire background, I find the brand of folk magic that I talk about on this podcast is both effective as well as safe. The demonic is not something to play around with. And I'm saying that in all of solemnness and sincerity and seriousness, seeing firsthand what the demonic can do to others. So please be careful and also get to know yourself and ask yourself why are you interested in working with the demonic? Is it just a simple curiosity? That's fine. Or is this some form of inner rebellion against the church that you grew up with? Because this whole podcast is an attempt for you to reclaim the power, the mysticism, the spirituality, and the magic, and the bits and pieces of Catholicism and Christianity that were never taught to you and that were taken from you. So this is all about reclaiming a power, and that power can defeat demons. End of story. All right, so we've covered curses, hexes, why God will or will not be wrathful, and, and the demonic. So now let's move on to some more lighthearted stuff. 
uh, I get a lot of requests for just some surface level info on Saints. Hopefully I am looking to do deep dives into every folk magic and, f and folk saint um, in out there. So I will be doing deep dives on all of the saints you want to hear about. But let's do some surface level chats about saints. Um, the first one someone wants more insight on is Saint Lazarus. So there are two Saint Lazaruses. Um, I'm assuming the question is about the one that is more widely revered. And that Saint Lazarus is often depicted as a man, usually on crutches, a leper, and he has dogs uh, usually licking his wounds. That's the Lazarus that is most commonly worked with in folk magic. Then you have Lazarus of Bethany, which is the Lazarus that Jesus brought back from the dead. Um, they are both kind of used in folk magic. However, Lazarus the leper is used more often. So I'm going to assume that you are asking about Lazarus the leper. So, like I said, this is not Lazarus that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. This is the Lazarus that was spoken about in the parable of the rich man and the leper. Uh, I talked about this in the Healing Psalms episode because that Bible verse um, alongside a prayer card of Lazarus is often used in healing work. So I talk about it in the Healing Psalms episode Yes, it's a Bible verse, not a psalm, but that episode covers a little bit of everything. So check that out. Uh, but yeah, so this Lazarus, um, as he is afflicted by leprosy, he is often used for both skin conditions or any kind of illness that has a negative social stigma. So, I mean, these days it's different, but also think of like HIV or AIDS or um, any kind of illness or sickness that might make people, you know, want to turn away from you. Lazarus is often used and gone to. In voodoo and hoodoo, sometimes Papa Legba is prayed to under the statue of Lazarus. And I believe that has to do with the dogs. There's a there's dogs in the prayer cards and in some statues, and I believe there's some symbolism with dogs and Papa Legba. So if you are approaching Lazarus from a hoodoo or a voodoo perspective, you're actually praying to Papa Legba. But from a saint magic point of view, folk magic point of view beyond hoodoo and voodoo, Lazarus is used for assistance with any kind of illness, skin affliction, or otherwise. Um, the ceremony I discussed, the ritual I discussed in the Healing Psalms episode is, I believe, a lot more detailed than the one I'm going to give now, so please check that one out. I'm already, this, this episode's already going a lot longer than what I thought it was, so I'm not going to jump into two workings for him. I'll give you a new one that I haven't talked about before, and that is petitioning him using a, um, a milagro, which is a charm, a little charm or an amulet. You use a charm or an am amulet that is anatomically appropriate for what you need. So let's say you have um, a skin condition, you have eczema on your or psoriasis on your arms really badly, and you want assistance in him curing that for you. So when you petition him, whether that's through a novena candle or just having a prayer card and praying to him, you will offer him that charm in the shape of an arm or if it's a heart condition in the shape of a heart, um, so on and so forth. 
So if he does help you, it said then you get him a um, a more expensive charm. So this charm might be an arm instead of it being silver, it's gold with diamonds encrusted in it. If he performs a miracle, then it said you give him um, life-sized charms formed of precious materials like gold. Um, or you could get him like a, his own statue or something along those lines. All right, I have gotten a few questions about Saint Mikael or Michael, as well as the archangels. And then last night we were speaking about guardian angels on a live stream I had. So we will be doing an episode on all of the archangels, Gabriel, Raphael, Mikael, at least the archangels in traditional Catholicism, and also its own episode on guardian angels because I think that is very much underutilized. This question in particular was about Mikael. And um, yeah, he is very interesting to me, namely because you see him in all forms of Abrahamic religions. You see him in Judaism. You see him in, of course, Christianity. You see him in Islam. You also see him in some other spaces that's kind of unexpected. Um, some other forms of spirituality, kind of native spirituality. Um, especially in the Caribbean and things like that. So I like him because he's universal. He is called um, Michael, who is like God, who is like unto God. So he has the similar powers um, and strength of God, except he can be more involved in the human realm since he is an angel. He is said to have a fiery sword that can slay demons, but it can also protect you from negativity, negative situations, bad situations, bad luck, bad outcomes, and things of that nature. He is humanity's protector, and that is humanity, period. Despite any kind of religious orientation, he is there and he is with you. Um, talking about justice magic and things like that earlier in this episode, it is not uncommon for someone to reach out to Michael for protection and also see Michael as a justice type figure. And if he deems fit, he will not only protect and bind you or protect you and bind the person after you, but he may make them pay a little bit, though he is very much centered on the greater good in situations. So in other words, the person has to deserve it. As I've said many times, I am not a grimoire practitioner, nor am I a Solomonic magic practitioner or a ceremonial magic practitioner. However, uh, they have a lot of ceremonies and rituals for connecting with the archangels. For me personally, I do work with St. Michael. It has been a process. The angels, like I've said in past episodes, are harder to connect with because they were not humans. Their energy feels a little different. And sometimes they cannot always relate to our situations because they have not gone through it themselves, unlike a saint who you can often relate to. So it can be difficult connecting with an angel. What I recommend and what others have recommended is first getting a relationship going with your guardian angel. We all have guardian angels. We are all born with them and they take charge over thee. As it says in Psalm 91, we all have angels that protect us and through forming a relationship with this guardian angel, they will assist in connecting you with the archangels. And the three archangels are interesting in themselves because they also kind of represent the three areas most people look to spirituality or magic for protection, that will be um, Mikael, um, 
communication or relationships, that would be Gabriel, and then healing or health, and that would be Raphael. So that's also interesting in of itself because uh, connecting with these three spiritual beings can give us a lot of what we need in this temporal realm. And there are series upon series of things we can talk about when it comes to angels. But if you do want to connect with um, any of them, I do recommend starting with Michael. I think Michael is the most active and I recommend you finding a prayer that you like to your guardian angel. I don't like the little rhymey one. I think that one just sounds kind of childish. There are others out there or just sitting and connecting with your guardian angel for a few days or a few weeks. And then I recommend getting a novena candle, prayer card to St. Saint Michael. I do go back and forth between St. Michael and St. Michael, by the way. I need to pick one. Anyhow. Uh, and then do a novena after you connect more with your guardian angel move on to michael mikael um and then if you do want a spell right now since i gave you one for lazarus you want one for for mikael check out the fiery wall of protection spell it's a very common spell it involves four candles i believe and then a novena or cross-shaped candle in the middle you dress it with herbs and you burn it for protection. Very common spell to the point where they also make fiery well of protection oil that you can also use in this candle spell. Very common, very powerful way to work with the Archangel, Mikael, Michael, Miguel, Mikey, whatever you want to call him. Next saint or version of Mary. It's Mary Undoer of Knots, also called Mary Untire of Knots. Who is this? This is a this is not a Marian apparition like Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Lords, Our Lady of Fatima. This is a certain devotion. Um, so this comes from Germany, Bavaria, Germany. Um, there is a painting in a cathedral there, and I'm trying to remember the name. It is the Monastery of St. Peter in Augsburg, and they have a painting of Mary, and she is holding a rope, and she is actually undoing knots. And there's a lot of beautiful symbolism in it. Uh, she's surrounded by angels, uh, the Holy Spirit in the in the form of a dove, a circle of stars, and she's untying this long ribbon. And um, her foot is on the head of a knotted snake. And of course, the snake represents evil or the fulfillment of the, the prophecy in Genesis, how she will crush the head of evil with her foot, with her heel. Um, so essentially, um, this big painting was kind of famous. People would pray in front of it. Um, and there became a tradition at this church where if a couple was having any kind of issues, then the priest, and this was in, I believe, the 1500s, this Jesuit priest would um, pray to Mary um, alongside them. Um, in this religious act, I raised the bonds of matrimony to untie all knots and smoothen them. And then it said that immediately peace would be restored between the husband and the wife. So it really became kind of this, um, almost this pilgrimage that couples would go to, to be prayed with in front of this painting, um, to 
really untie any knots in the relationship. And it could, yeah, it could be a disagreement, but it could be financial troubles, uh, difficulty having a child, uh, things like that. And then that devotion kind of went from just relationship problems to find personal financial problems, personal protection problems and things of that nature. And Our Lady Untire or Undoer of Knots has actually become a very popular Marian devotion in Argentina. And that is actually because Archbishop or later Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio uh, really started um, incorporating a lot of postcards and imagery of Undoer of Knots, Mary Undoer of Knots, in throughout uh, Buenos Aires, and he would later become Pope Francis. But he was actually the one that instilled a lot of devotion to her in Argentina and kind of throughout Latin America. It really started with him bringing icons and imagery and postcards and shops um, to Argentina. So a little fun fact for you. Staying on the Mary train, someone also asked about working with Our Lady of Fatima. Um, And that is one of the most intense, drawn out stories that we could get into. That's probably the most interesting, controversial, I wouldn't say controversial. It's the most loaded Marian apparition because you have saints involved, you have popes involved, you have secrets, you have um, Russia involved. (laughs) You have a lot involved with that old story and that is going to need its own episode. But essentially, um, three children saw an apparition of Mary and she gave them three secrets um, in which those secrets were slowly revealed. Um, And that was also... um, it, it was mainly the three children who would see them just in their own minds and with their own eyes. However, the miracle of the moving sun or the dancing sun happened when Mary promised um, to look up in the sky at a certain time. Um, she would do something to prove that she has been speaking to these children. And thousands upon thousands of people looked up in the sky and the sun was said to dance in the sky. So this was in... 1910s, 1917, I believe is, is when this, yeah, 1917 is when this first happened. So there is, is still a lot of, there were news stories and cameras um, that kind of chronicled the, uh, the miracle of the sun and it dancing as well, which is really interesting. How to work with Our Lady of Fatima, how to work with uh, Mary Untire of Knots, uh, very basic answer, and that is going to be a rosary. If you can find a rosary with their images on them and speak to them um, for what they they are good for. Honestly, Untire, Undoer of Knots, that one's kind of straightforward. Uh, Fatima is more, um, I would use her in a way, since she gave secrets to people, to these three children, I would ask her um, to assist you in knowing knowledge that you need to know, as well as the sense the secrets centered around spirituality, I would also ask for her assistance in growing your spiritual life. They likely do make um, novenas to her in her form, probably not as common, so I would use a saint card in a white uh, or a pink novena. And um, any kind of offerings you would give to Mary, you would also give to this version. Then later we have a question about what's up with all of these versions of Mary. Um, So we'll get to that after I go through my saint list. 
All right, and then another listener asked about the Black Madonna. Um, and there's there's a lot to unpack there as well, so we will need to do its own episode. There is not just one Black Madonna. Usually if you're referring to the Black Madonna, you're referring to a painting, um, La Moreneta, which was a statue that is said to have been carved by Saint Luke, the one that wrote one of the Gospels, that guy. And it's said to have been brought to Spain, um, and it depicts a a black Madonna, a Mary with black or dark skin, with a child on her lap. So sometimes when you hear the black Madonna, they are referring to that symbol, that statue of Mary that is now worshipped in Spain in a monastery, and is said to be carved by Saint Luke. However. When I hear Black Madonna, I think of a Black Madonna, because there are various Black Madonnas, and they are very mysterious. Uh, Black Madonna statues kind of pop up here and there uh, throughout history. They are either discovered new or discovered old. Um, They are often part of archaeological digs. So kind of what are they is a source of debate and mystery and mystique. Uh, From my perspective, What happened was Catholicism was beginning to take over pagan cities. You hear this and you see this in both St. Lucy and St. Nick episodes. But Catholicism was taking over pagan cities and they would have these statues of goddesses and the people, the Catholics, would just paint it black and either the townspeople would still pray to their goddess, but they would do it under the guise of this new black statue saying it's Mary, or they would literally now pray to Mary. But Mary was now just this black statue. Um, And that is why some in certain areas throughout Europe, uh, you find them in Asia, you even find some in the United States. Um, Those are likely newer. Um, But there's a lot of mystery around them, especially the older ones throughout Europe, Um, because some of them have a tradition that kind of marries, no pun intended, marries um, pagan goddess and Virgin Mary rituals together. So uh, there are plenty. I do recommend you research all of them. Um, I mean, they're all throughout Europe. You see them in the Americas and Asia. Um, I'm trying to see how many there are but there are quite a lot. So I do recommend you check them out. Some of them will have uh, less mysterious um, stories. Some are just carvings of Mary with darker skin because she was a Middle Eastern woman. Um, And that's that. But some do have more mysterious origins because they're believed to have been carved from or painted over from a goddess statue. And then the uh, the forms of worship were kind of infused with some paganism there. And we will need to do a whole episode on Black Madonnas. I'm still learning and new to the Black Madonna uh, culture in the world. All right, someone wants to know more about the Holy Spirit. Um, I am fascinated by the Holy Spirit because I feel as if the Holy Spirit is not spoken enough about in magical spaces 
and honestly a lot of spiritual spaces, even though the Holy Spirit goes by various names depending on the culture. So in Taoism, you would call it the Tao. In Tantric Hinduism, you would call it Kundalini. In other forms of Hinduism, you would call it Prana. In Buddhism, you call it Vijnanya. And in Christianity, you would call it the Holy Spirit. So you have a lot of cultures that talk about having this force, this energy around you that is both in you and outside of you that you can gather up, that you can feel, that you can tap into. And then you have a lot, a lot, a lot of Eastern religions, and spoiler alert, it's in Catholicism and, Christ and other forms of Christianity, we just don't talk about it. But you have a lot of these Eastern thought processes about aligning with this energy, connecting with this energy. That energy is also seen as divine. It is seen as God in some kind of form. So you are connecting with the divine. You are connecting with this energy and in connecting with that energy, you're connecting with the energy of God. So it's fascinating. And it's in many cultures and it's in Christianity too. We just call it the Holy Spirit. And also in Eastern Orthodoxy and Eastern Catholicism, so not necessarily as spoken often in Roman Catholicism, but Byzantine Catholicism, Marianite Catholicism, uh, Greek Catholicism, which are in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. They talk about this concept of theosis, which I know that is talking about, that's talked about in Roman Catholicism as well. I apologize. They just believe it, it's different levels. But theosis, and theosis is connecting with the divine, connecting with God, connecting with this energy and what energy is invisible and all around us in the Trinity, and that's the Holy Spirit. So it's this energy that that you can feel, that you can tap into. And that's what I was kind of talking about on my live the other day when I'm talking about Psalms, uh, when I'm talking about prayer, when I'm talking about what you might want to call a spell. The most important part is feeling that energy when you speak feeling into it, tapping into it, and understanding what that energy is, understanding it when it flows through your body. Um, there are, from a Catholic perspective and a folk magic perspective, there are prayers uh, and ways to tap into the Holy Spirit. There is a Holy Spirit chaplet. There are Holy Spirit novenas, and there is the Come Holy Spirit prayer, uh, but also silent meditation, repetition of a certain prayer or a certain mantra. I, I love the Jesus prayer. Um, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me over and over again. That's what you would do in the Eastern Church or the Eastern Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Church. It's called Hesychasm. I also like repeating Kyrie Eleison, Christe Eleison, Kyrie Eleison, which is Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Um, you might even be able to tap into it when you're doing a rosary. But the Holy Spirit is all around you and that is what fuels your magic and that is what fuels your life, your creativity, your energy. It is your Shakti. It is your power, your prana, it is the force. So learn to feel it. It's hard to explain, but it's there. You felt it before. And learning how to tap into that is very vital for your work and your practice. All right, I do not know how we've already been talking for over an hour. So I'm going to streamline my responses for the rest of these saints because this is just the saint section. We have a lot more questions to get to. Um, People want to know about Saint Lidwina or Lidwina. Honestly, don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, she is the patron saint of MS. Her story is interesting. It goes 
and this is off the dome, but I will fact check myself and re-record it if I'm wrong. Um, the story goes that she was ice skating and she fell and broke a rib. And then suddenly she became paralyzed and her body parts started falling off. Her, her ears, um, I want to say her nose, her lips, body parts started falling off, but they were well-preserved. They were incorruptible. They weren't rotting. So the physician started keeping them in jars just because like, what the hell? Uh, why are you fine? And um, people started seeing that as a, as a form of her being holy. And then eventually um, miracles started happening in the room she was in. She was bedridden, she was paralyzed. And it got to the point where even the church uh, was beginning to confirm that her healing others uh, and these miracles that were happening in her room were valid. And yeah, she became basically a saint based on her healing abilities. Um, how, but she could not heal herself, but she could heal others. So there was also a compassionate element in there. And a lot of people think that, I guess a wider explanation of her symptoms led many people to believe that she had MS, though this was in the 1400s. So it was before what many people would know ms to be uh, but yeah that's her story in a nutshell she is still considered the patron of ms and it is because um they said she is supposed to have it and um her healing ability is why many people will go to her and it's not just healing ms it can be healing for various things if you are looking for more saints that can heal things such as ms pope Saint Pope John Paul II, one of the miracles that was attributed to him that pushed him into sainthood was curing someone of MS. Um, but he also had Parkinson's disease, so he's more closely tied to curing Parkinson's, um, which was another miracle that was attributed to, attributed to him after death. Padre Pio is also a great healing saint, and there was actually a very recent story of someone being healed of MS after visiting his tomb. Someone wants to know about St. Philomena, and that is going to have to be its own episode. So basically, people found some bones, they found a corpse, and the placard said something along the lines of, well, they didn't know. It was jumbled. It was a mess. They found pieces of the placard. They didn't know how to put it together. Uh, but one of the ways to put it together was, here lies the martyr and blessed Philomena. Uh, and they assumed since she was a martyr, the church assumed that uh, she was a holy person and that she could be canonized. And then people began praying to her, her corpse and miracles began happening to the point where a small almost cult formed around her. And um, even one of the popes, Pope Gregory, was involved in worship and adoration to this corpse saint, Saint Philomena. Uh, we will be doing an episode on that for sure down the line. I also want to point out that Philomena was never declared an official saint by the church. Um, this is not uncommon. A lot of people uh, during that time were not, but they were still venerated. Joan of Arc is actually a great example. She was not canonized until 1920. And this was because calling someone a saint did not become an official process, like official paperwork um, type of thing until um, the 1700s. So you have a lot of people that were venerated for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they are just not in the official register of saints. And Philomena is one of those. And I'm bringing that up because this person also wants to know about Rosalina, 
who has a very similar story, and this takes place in Palermo, Italy, I believe. Uh, basically, uh, people found a skeleton in a cave, and um, I believe the... I'm trying to remember the exact inscription, but it said a something along the lines of, I will live in this cave forever and die in this cave in honor of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, something along those lines. And she began um, getting, after the discovery of that, of the skeleton in the, in the cave, she began to get visitors who would make her crowns of flowers and give her offerings and then miracles would begin to happen. And she actually did become an official saint of the church. Both of those are spooky, eerie, and just the type of stuff that I want to dive in more fully in future episodes. And then the last saint of this saint rapid fire round that I'm doing right now is Saint Expedite. Um, I have to do an episode on Saint Expedite. He is one of the saints that is beloved by practitioners of all kinds, especially practitioners in the more occult and witchy type spaces. So Saint Expedite is the saint known for coming through quickly when you're in need of emergency. He's almost been described as it being an exchange. Um, I've heard him referred to more like a Amazon next day delivery service than an actual saint you form a relationship with. Um, you know, he doesn't really have much of a, a moral compass or an energy you feel. It's, it's just very transactional. Um, and there is a certain hard-lined rule when you work with Expedite, you give him pound cake, you give him half, half up front, and then you give him the rest after he comes through. Uh, Sarah Lee, pan, uh, pound cake to be exact, and you also give him wine when he comes through. So there's a lot of fun workings and stuff with Expedite because he's almost seen as more of this service, this figure. You know, in the beginning of the episode, I talked about saints that you need to form a relationship with. Uh, expedite is kind of considered one where you don't really need to form that much of one as long as you give him his pound cake. The person that asked about Expedite also said that they heard that he wasn't really a saint, and I know why someone might have said that. There's two reasons, really. The first is, um, if you look at him, he is just a saint um, in a Roman um, soldier uniform. And it said, the story goes, that the box said Expedite on it at a, at a monastery, and the monastery opened it and they said, oh, well, this must be Saint Expedite, because they didn't know what that word meant. Um, and usually, I mean, that, that's been attributed to um, cities in France. It's also been attributed to New Orleans uh, where that happened. Not sure how much validity that is, but that is one reason why people say that this is not a real person that existed. It was a statue either of a, another saint, a different saint, but um, the box just said Expedite on it but it was really St. Olypius or Aldipius. Um, and because of the name Expedite, they were like, oh, this is the saint we pray to when we need something expedited our way. So this saint is a real saint. It is still venerated by the church that was pre-congregation. Um, and in a lot of saints that were pre-congregation are not like in the official feast book calendar, but they weren't necessarily removed from a list of saints or anything like that. So St. Expedite is still a real saint. 
um, just kind of the the background is up in the air. You know, was he a Roman soldier? Was he this Roman soldier who was also a martyr for being a Christian called Eldipius or Olypius? Uh, we don't know, but there is there are stories about him. Um, he does have a, a conversion story, or I believe he faced the the devil in the form of a crow. I believe so. There is stories around him, but he is used quite often in both the traditional world and the magical world for getting things quickly. And a lot of people that do saint work, a lot of their first interactions with a saint is through Expedite because he is very simple to work with. All right, the next question is a good one. Which saints can work for protecting a newly out non-binary teen? Very, very great question. And there's also a very simple answer for this because there is a saint that is often revered and turned to for people in the LGBT community. And that is, there's, there's plenty, but the one I would recommend would be Saint Joan of Arc. There was a common archetype in medieval stories about a woman putting on the, the armor of a man um, and pretending or dressing as a man to fight in battle. So it's not uncommon that Joan did that, though there are historians um, and even theologians that would point out to St. Joan being what you may refer to now as non-binary. Of course, I'm hesitant to say things like that because that archetype, that concept did not exist back then. Um, however, she is quite often revered by the LGBTQ community for just that. Not to mention, regardless, um, non-binary or not, um, St. Joan of Arc is a fierce protector of everyone, um, especially those who may be oppressed, who may be bullied, who may be looked down upon. So St. Joan of Arc is your person. The next one, a saint to turn to for folks living with chronic illness like HIV. Um, I did talk about Lazarus earlier in this episode, so check out Lazarus. The second one would be Saint Pellegrine, or Pellegrin, who is the patron saint of cancer, um, AIDS, HIV, and really any other serious illness. And that is because he was said to have some kind of flesh-eating bacteria, or some kind of infection, or some people say cancer, in his leg and he was said to be praying about it when Jesus appeared and touched his leg and then when he woke up the cancer the wound the infection was gone and healed and the doctors could not believe it um, so he is venerated for cancer AIDS or any other kind of serious illness uh, he was gonna have to have his leg amputated essentially so anything serious he is one person you pray to Pray alongside. There's also plenty of statues, novena candles, and prayer cards for him. That's Saint Pellegrine, so he's very easy to find as well. All right, the next one is what is a saint for throat illnesses, and that would be Saint Blaise. Uh, he is the patron saint of throat illness, um, and that is because uh, he is actually an apostle. He is in the act of apostles, and a child was choking. Uh, on a fishbone, and the fishbone was very deep in their throat, I guess, I don't know, I guess the Heimlich maneuver didn't work. I believe the child was dying and or dead already. And St. Blaise prayed over the child, and the child was cured and or brought back to life. So he is the patron saint of 
choking, but also um, throat illnesses of many kinds. This is actually one of the saint ritual ceremonies that is in the official Roman ritual, and that is the Saint Blaise throat blessing ceremony. I remember as a child, I went to a Saint Blaise throat blessing ceremony mass, and I had my throat blessed. What they do is they take like a two-pronged candle, and they put it around your neck, and they say a prayer, invoking Saint Blaise to protect and heal you from any illnesses of the throat. So Saint Blaise is your go-to guy. And you don't see a lot of formal saint healing rituals in the Roman ritual, so it's really interesting that his is in there. All right, what are some saints and or folk magic practices for cultivating creativity? I would say any kind of meditation is gonna help you. Um, that That's not folk magic or saint magic, but silent meditation, mantra meditation, going for a walk, so walking meditation, all that's gonna be helpful. Now, the creativity, if you wanna incorporate a saint, it's gonna depend on the type of art or thing you are creating. So if it is visual art, there's a lot. There's Catherine of Bologna, but there's also Saint Luke. Saint Luke was, was thought to have created the first paintings of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Writing, there are plenty. Um, Saint John, the evangelist, if we want to keep it with the apostle theme, but plenty more. Um, also Psalms, I would recommend you, I, I, rather than me saying these Psalms will help with writer's block or, or to cre with creativity instead, I would just recommend going through the book of Psalms and seeing which ones can help you um, and move you into whatever your situation is. And once you find that Psalm, start repeating it, start repeating it with the Holy Spirit. Wait till no one's around, no one's home, and pretend like you're a preacher. And repeat it until you feel whatever that is. And that, by that I mean, if you find a line in a psalm about blockages, about openness, about energy, and it speaks to you, that's your psalm that you need to pray. So pray it. Also, tarot could help here. If you wanna, if you can find yourself coming across a certain question you have about your creative blocks or a certain area of creativity you want to um, touch on, I also recommend pulling tarot for yourself and seeing what comes from that. I know that's kind of a, a lazy, simple answer, but there there's a lot that can be said for divination as well as simple prayers uh, looking at the book of Psalms. Who is a saint for self-improvement? If we are talking about emotional or spiritual or compassionate self-improvement, I do recommend Our Lady of Sorrows. I talk about that in the Our Lady of Sorrows episode. I talk about opening up your own heart and also how praying to her can reveal areas in your life that you need to improve. Though, the one that I'm going to recommend that I think is underutilized for their work in organization and keeping goals is going to be St. Benedict of Nursia. The first episode I ever did was on Benedict, and he is known for creating structure, creating process in his monasteries to the point where it pissed off a lot of monks and they tried to kill him. So he is known for not only creating process processes, but also keeping them. So a prayer, a novena to Benedict will work very well. And in my experience, Benedict usually comes through. So check that out. 
Also, we talked about uh, Mary Undoer of Knots in this episode. Check her out as well. She can undo those knots that may be holding you back. Someone asked, what are the differences between these versions, these forms of Mary, you know, Undoer of Knots, Guadalupe, Our Lady of Sorrows. Uh, there are a lot of ways to really break that down. Um, for instance, Guadalupe is likely a combination of some of the indigenous and ancestral belief practices in that area. Um, but barring that, the easiest way, and I guess the official way to talk about the versions of Mary are really the forms of God, the forms of the divine, the forms of divine in various things. You see that in Hinduism a lot, actually. So each god in Hinduism has 108 names. So Lord Ganesha. Lord Ganesha is a general of the armies of Shiva. Ganesha is the destroyer of obstacles. Ganesha is the tamer of temptations. Um, so you also kind of have that paradigm with Mary as well, which is really fascinating. So you have Mary in the form of undoer of knots, who will undo the problems you have. You have her in the form of Our Lady of Sorrows, who is supposed to be protective, but also makes you reflect on being compassionate. You also have her as Guadalupe, who has, since that was a Marian apparition, that was a Mary appearing to someone, so was Our Lady of Sorrows. There's also graces tied to, uh, tied to it. So if you venerate Mary in the form of Our Lady of Guadalupe, here are the graces that come with that. And there are certain graces. There are certain graces with Our Lady of Sorrows, which we went through in that episode. So really it's Mary in her various forms um, and things of that nature. So kind of, that version of Mary has her own specialty. Of course, you can just pray to Mary, period, and that's fine, and you'll get all of the graces you need. Uh, but having those specific devotions are supposed to have a more potent energy to them. So if you are looking to have a problem undone, go to Mary Undoer of Knots. If you, are, if you need assistance quickly, Mary... Uh, lady of perpetual help. If you feel like you are in suffering, uh, suffering from you know injustice, Our Lady of Guadalupe. If you feel like you want to work on your compassion, or you feel like you want to soften the heart of others, work with Our Lady of Sorrows. So it's really kind of the different personalities or the different aspects of the goddess. Really, sorry that I'm saying goddess, but. Mother of God makes her a goddess. So do what you want to do with that. And we will be doing episodes on various forms of Mary, especially the apparitions. So Fatima, Lourdes, Guadalupe, things like that. All right. So the next, can you provide any more insight on spiritual baths? Sure. You're going to see that mostly, you, you see it a lot in folk magic. You really do. Um, I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing people talk about it. In Appalachian folk magic, I'm seeing people talk about it just in regular kind of eclectic witchcraft. Um, but you see it a lot in hoodoo. You see it a lot in Southern Conjure, Appalachian folk magic. I think you might see it a little bit in Mexican folk magic as well. It basically is to cleanse yourself or purge yourself of any kind of negativity uh, or to assist you in getting the thing you want. So the same way you would use an oil 
of some sort or an herb of some sort, maybe in a novena, maybe in a bottle, you would just use it in a bath. That's kind of the most basic way of saying it. I believe that Catholic folk magic and I guess going back to hoodoo as well, um, they both have strong ties, of course, to baptism, but also in the Bible, you have a lot of verses about cleansing yourself with a certain herb. Most of the time that herb is hyssop. So there's actually a spiritual bath where after you do some kind of um, intense working, you cleanse yourself with a hyssop bath. So really it's just using magical herbs in a bath to cleanse yourself. And there's a lot, uh, you can go down with that topic. The um, Invoking Witchcraft podcast has a great episode on spiritual baths that you should check out. All right, next question. What are your views on the apocryphal gospels? So these are gospels, or we can also take it further and we can say these are writings that sometimes are still used um, in Catholicism or traditional um, theology, despite not being in the Bible, um, or sometimes they're not. Sometimes they just were not included, so they're not used traditionally in the church or in the institution. Um, my experiences with them, how I feel about them, I, <laughs> I feel like they're cool. Um, earlier, by the way, I said that um, St. Blaise was in the Acts of the Apostles, and that is incorrect. There is an act of St. Blaise, which is an apocryphal text, so it's not part of the official canon, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Uh, for instance, in the St. Joseph episode, we talk about non-canonical texts. We talk about how the idea that Joseph was this old man comes from um, a non-canonical text, a text that was not part of the Bible, but it's still used in kind of traditional lore. Um, the same thing goes with uh, Mary's parents and the names and the stories of Mary's parents, that that was just from apocryphal, um, non-canonical texts. There are interesting things in there. Of course, you have the Gnostic Gospels. Um, I read some of them, including the Gospel of Thomas in college, and that was 15 years ago at this point. So, um, not really too up to up to speed to talk about it off the cuff. I do know that the Gospel of Thomas had more of a, what you could consider an Eastern edge to it, and that is a path that I hold in a special place in my heart. Uh, but I do think my biggest takeaway just from the apocryphal gospels and non-canonical texts is just how open to interpretation that religion and spirituality used to be. I mean, think about it. You have these texts that were more or less fan fiction in some, in some cases, and that's okay. Um, but it's still used and venerated in certain ways, like the example of Joseph and, you know, the story about um, lilies sprouting from his staff and all of this stuff. I mean, that's not in the Bible anywhere. That's someone just wrote that, but it's included in lore because people felt like that added to Joseph's story, despite it not being in scripture. So why is it that the church and institutional thinking and religion can take some non-canonical texts and say, yeah, this is cool, but then when you want to interpret canon in a certain way, you can't do that. So it's a lot of hypocrisy there. And it showcases that there was a time in Catholicism and Christianity and as a whole, Protestantism as well, where you could be 
a little more open with your interpretation. Uh, you could write these new stories to make things make sense for you and your practice. So yes, there, there's a lot of cool things in Gnostic Gospels and Apocryphal texts. Um, my St. Peter episode where I tell a story about him fighting um, Simon, Simon the Sorcerer, that was an apocryphal text. That was a non-canonical text, but that was that's another text that's still talked about and read about uh, within Catholic circles. So the most interesting thing to me about these texts are, are just how how it showcases just how it used to be open and used to be okay to really interpret things in your own way and have a bunch of resources that you can pull from that could fit your own practice. And But today it's like if you go outside of scripture, you're heretical. Uh, there are really a lot of cool stories in the Gnostic Gospel as well. Gospel of Thomas, uh, Jesus makes little the child Jesus. So Jesus is a child. We never really see that in the Bible. So this is Jesus, I don't know. 10 years old, uh, makes a makes birds out of clay and then breathes on them and the birds come to life. Um, I think he I think he curses and kills a, ch a child who beat him at a game uh, and then he has to bring him back to life um, because Joseph got mad. Joseph got mad that he killed his friend so he had to bring him back to life. Um, Joseph was in his wood shop and uh, didn't have enough length on the wood he was working with so so jesus made the wood grow so like see like a lot of it's charming and it's it's charming it's cute it brings more life to the characters of the bible so why not like why not include those in the larger text uh, so i can see why traditional catholicism does want to keep on some of those but again why can't we pick and choose you know if if we can if we can uh choose the cutesy stories about you know joseph having flowers sprouting from his staff then can we also what about the apocryphal gnostic gospels that you know thomas writes where jesus is more of showcasing a way and that talks about how the kingdom of of heaven is right here on earth and it's about finding god on earth and communing with the divine on earth that's what the gospel of thomas is all about the gnostic gospel the apocryphal text so it's a really interesting topic i frankly don't have the the time personally uh to study them like i did when i was in college uh, i might have to you might have inspired me to, to pick up some of those texts again but the biggest takeaway i have is it points to a time where you could be a little more free and open with your views without being called a heretic. Like, could you imagine now writing a inspired text about the life of a, of a saint of Jesus of Mary? Like they, they'd call you a, a heretic, they'd call you crazy. That's what you used to do. And that's the apocryphal and non-canonical gospels. Not saying that all of them are fiction. Um, there are many that do have some credence that that this was a book written by a certain saint or about a certain saint so not all of them are fiction by the way uh some just weren't decided to be in the, the larger canon for one reason or another sometimes it was because of repetition and because of the repetition um some other larger stories or unique stories were left out 
So I also don't want to make it seem like the Apocryphal or the Gnostic Gospels were all fiction and fan fiction somewhere, but not all. Uh, so that's a whole rabbit hole you can go down. Enjoy. All right, next question. What are some prayers for insight and clarity? I know Saint Wise, you work with Saint Lucy and Saint Claire. But what about prayers? Sure. Well, it is a prayer when you're working with Claire and Lucy. So that is considered a prayer, even though it's saint work. Um, the rosary is the first one that comes to mind. It actually is a promised grace of the rosary to get insight. Also to get whatever is asked. That's just a straight up grace of the rosary to get the things you ask for. So you can, before you pray a rosary, you can make the intention, set the intention that I want this rosary to help me get insight or clarity. Um, also, the Our Lady of Sorrows episode, it is said that the Seventh Sorrows Chaplet, uh, the Virgin Mary will give you some insight that way. Uh, Mary Magdalene, it is said that you take a bundle of rosemary and you place it in blessed wine under your bed and you can prophesize in dreams. Oh, you said not saint work, so never mind. Uh, but as far as prayers, you know, you can have a general prayer to God, to whoever you want to, asking for clarity. But as far as the, the first ones that come to mind um, and the easiest are the rosary. And also for clarity or insight, I would recommend Psalm 115. What you do is you pray the psalm, you read the psalm before going to bed or before winding down for the evening. So you would pray the psalm and then you will anoint your temples with oil. Some of the oils you can anoint your head with are just a blessed oil, like a blessed olive oil or a blessed St. Joseph's oil. I talk about a simple oil blessing in my Protective Psalms episode. Or you can use, and I'd probably recommend this more, some kind of oil you'd find at your hoodoo shop, your botanica online, like a Trinity oil or a psychic oil. So check that out. The next question is, is it better to work with one saint at a time or multiple at once? So that depends. So if you are work, if you have one thing that you are looking to solve, like let's say you're looking for a new job. Um, in that case, it will be helpful to have another saint ally on the altar, but the working is still centered around one saint. So let's say you're looking for a new job. Um, in that case, you would do a novena to St. Joseph, but you might also have St. Anthony on the altar and after you do the novena, you also say a prayer to Anthony as well, because Joseph is the patron of all workers, and then Anthony is the finder of things. He can help you find a job. You can also reverse those. The main novena can be to Anthony, but you also have a prayer to Joseph you recite at the same time. So that's having a saint ally, and that is good. That's helpful. Um, but your focus should still kind of be on one. One is still kind of the star. Um, now, if you're asking if, you know, in one week, can you, can you do a novena to Joseph on Monday to find a new job, to Padre Pio on Tuesday to heal an afflicted illness that you have, then on Wednesday you do one to um, St. Michael for protection. In that case, I'd probably say you need to slow down and just work on one and just focus on one novena 
one working and put your energy into that. Uh, but you can work with multiple saints at once. I do recommend, like I said at the top of the episode, to still form a relationship with saints. Um, that way, even when you don't need anything that way, it's easier to have a bunch of saints on your altar at once uh, during a working. Uh, so it's, it feels more sincere because you have a relationship with Joseph, you have a relationship with Anthony. So reaching out to both of them at once isn't is it a problem? There are saints that said that um, you should likely work with them alone. I can't think of too many. I mean, I can think of Saint Michael. His energy is supposed to be very powerful, that it said that it's not recommended he share an altar space with other saints or other ancestors or anything like that, just because his energy is so powerful. It'll push them out. Um, but yeah, so if you're doing a working, it's totally cool to have a saint ally, but your focus should still be on that one saint. So do the novena prayer, do all of the devotion in the workings of that one particular saint, but have another saint on the altar, read their prayer as part of the novena, or read their prayer as part of whatever working you're doing. Um, that, that example is probably more focused to traditional, well not traditional, but folk magic novenas. Let's say you're doing like a bottle type work or a mojo bag or something like that. In that case, you have a little more wiggle room. Um, I did a, a bottle protection working during hurricane season. We had a hurricane coming our way and the bottle included um, uh, Psalms, but included uh, a prayer to Michael, a prayer to the Virgin Mary, a prayer to St. Benedict. So stuff like that, if you're looking for like a mojo bag, a bottle working, uh, I think in that case, it's it's also okay to, to work with more saints than one. So in Novena, focus on one, but cool to have a saint ally. It's helpful. Bottle working, mojo bag. You can include multiple in there somehow. But even then, I, I still think it's probably recommended that one be the star. So like the bottle example during hurricane season, St. Michael was still kind of the star for that. Uh, I used red to represent Michael. Um, the I used Psalm 91 and kind of dedicated that to Michael. And I think I actually had two Michael prayer cards when I was burning the candle underneath it. So I still think it, it's probably always good to have one being the star, but then you can have others helping and being allies. A listener wants to know about working with Old Testament figures. Of course, work with them. Um, they are still considered saints, but since they are pre-congregation, they are not called saints, but Moses, even Adam and Eve, um, King David, all of the prophets, very, very great to work with. And we will be doing episodes on some of them soon, especially the ones that are also venerated in Judaism like Moses. So that was kind of a short and simple answer, uh, but definitely work with them by all means. The Old Testament is very powerful. All right, another listener says they just learned about Saint Guinefort. Are there any other animal saints? So, Guinefort is a folk saint and it is a dog. That's cool. That's fun. Um, so basically what happened was a father came home and saw that their dog Guinefort was covered in blood and they heard the baby crying, their baby crying. And then when they went into 
bedroom, the nursery, they saw the baby also had, was covered in blood. So the father was very overcome with rage and killed the dog because they thought that the dog attacked the baby. And then when they went and looked in the baby's crib to, to tend to the baby because they thought it was dead, uh, they found out the baby was still alive and in the, in the crib was a dead snake. So what really happened was the dog, Guinefort, actually killed the snake to protect the baby. And then the um, the father and the family were so overcome with grie uh, grief and remorse, they buried the dog in a well, and then they planted a tree. And then the tree grew over the dog, and then that tree was said to bring miracles to anyone who went and visited the tree. Uh, there's actually a lot of folklore that predates that story that is similar, uh, I believe. Um, this happened in near Lyons, France. So that is a folk saint, and this is also one that the 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 locals really revered, even the local churches. And that's what I really like about like medieval Catholicism is uh, before the Council of Trent, it was really kind of a free for all. Like you could you could believe what you kind of wanted to, depending on the parish. The parish would believe different things. This parish was totally cool, praying to. Um, this dog tree spirit. Um, so yeah, and as of the 1970s, there was still like a small cult of followers who still prayed to uh, Guinefort. So there's likely still people that venerate this folk saint today. So it was never an official canonized saint. Um, fun story, check it out. Are there any other animal saints? Not that I know of. Not even folk saints. However, I will give you a bonus for Saint Christopher, the same Saint Christopher you know who carried the infant Jesus across the river when the bridge collapsed, the patron saint of travelers. He is sometimes depicted with a dog head. And this is from a few different texts, actually. Uh, they describe him as being from this clan of people who were essentially half dog, half human. Some people think that the word was simply Canaanite, which was mistranslated to canine in some texts and later some art. But you also have some descriptions of him in other texts that describe him as being a very large man that looked like a dog. So <laughs> that one's interesting. So there is a chance that St. Christopher was half man, half dog. There's a lot to go into there. We're doing a St. Christopher episode soon. Um, not much is really known about Christopher regardless, just that he was a, uh, a martyr. So there's a lot of wiggle room in his legend and his story. And then you start seeing things pop up that he was really a werewolf, which it's pretty badass. So, not that many other animal folk saints that I know about, but St. Christopher was thought to have been half man, half dog. So there you go. Who are your favorite Catholic mystics? Oof, good question. Um, mysticism can be defined in various ways. You do have the theological definition of mysticism and an actual category of theology as mysticism. However, then you also have mystics that are defined simply as saints or individuals who 
had mystical experiences and thus their view to spirituality was formed and shaped by mysticism. So even if they did not have or write any theological texts in the category or arena of mysticism, they are still considered mystics. That was a lot to say. So I'm putting that down so I could say some people that people might not think are mystics if you're thinking or approaching mysticism in a theological context. So the first one would be St. Francis of Assisi. Um, if you know about him, his views, the Franciscans have always been a little more, a little more woo-woo with their approach to theology, and largely that is because of St. Francis. St. Francis saw the divine in all things, um, you know, saw God in the birds and the animals, and also saw that, that animals and humans share a same kind of divine connection, a soul. Sp speaks a lot about finding the Holy Spirit in things, uh, a lot. I, he also spoke to a mother nature, which was very goddess-like. Um, so Francis is, is number one on my list. Very beautiful, very Eastern, and a mystic. If you see God in all things, you are a mystic. From there, I would say St. Teresa, both of them, <laughs> Soavilia and Little Flower, both of them beautiful mystics for different reasons. Check them both out. Though St. Teresa of Avilia also was the mentor of St. John of the Cross, who was another great mystic who has a really cool story. We'll be doing an episode on him. Um, the Dark Knight of the Soul is all about what it sounds like um, going through darkness and despair, but ultimately coming out with a spiritual transformation. So St. John of the Cross is another beautiful mystic with beautiful theological writings. So he's another good one. Padre Pio, of course, is a mystic that while has not pinned any scholarship on the topic of mysticism, still could biolocate, read souls, have the stigmata, could heal, still heals today. He said his, his most profound work will come after his death. So Padre Pio is going to be on that list as well. Thomas Merton, of course, is a really good author and writer and theologian to get into. My personal spiritual father of many sorts that a lot of people do not know about that I will share with you all. I have only shared this with one or two people, and that is Father Anthony DeMello, uh, a Jesuit priest who in the 70s and 80s did a series called Rediscovering Life. He has a book called Awareness. Um, very, very beautiful priest who talks about non-attachment, who talks about finding God in everything, who talks about really removing all of our preconceived notions until nothing is there but the the profound, the simple, the beautiful, and the divine. Um, Father DeMello changed my life, and I don't think many would consider him a mystic, but I do. And Cardinal Ratzinger didn't like him because his teachings were a little too Eastern, they were a little too open, they were a little too accepting of all people, but still very much revered. He was never like, you know, defrocked or anything. So Father Anthony DeMello, check him out. His books are really good, but please check out his videos. 
Um, they're the like the cable public broadcast, public access broadcast type stuff from this from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, but that really showcases his humor, his approach to spirituality much better than his books do. His books are great, but you have to hear his inflection, his tone to really understand him. So cannot recommend Anthony DeMello any more than I already do. And since I do have a attraction and interest in the Eastern side of things, um, I need to talk about the Eastern fathers of the church, namely St. Anthony of the desert. And you ask Catholic, so I will not get into Eastern Orthodox fa desert fathers, who I also really enjoy. Um, Seraphim would be one of them. Um, Anthony of the desert was really the first ascetic monk. He went and lived in a cave in Egypt, um, in which later a, a community and a monastery was built around him. Um, very beautiful stories about his battles with the demonic and all that, you know, cool, exciting stuff, but very much enjoyed him because his focus was on a personal practice. His focus was on finding God on your own terms, and it was very beautiful. Uh, he still has a monastery. The monastery that he founded and started is still active today. Uh, there was an episode, one of the Q&As, I talked about this TV show. It was called Extreme Pilgrim. Um, and it's in, from the BBC. The full episode is on YouTube, but the final episode, he goes and follows in the footsteps of St. Anthony. He, live, he goes and visits kind of the... Um, the small cell he lived in, he lived like under a church in Egypt uh, for some time, and then he goes and lives in the cave that St. Anthony of the Desert lived in for 10 days or so. And he visits the monastery, and he also has some of the, um, some of the other monks that are there uh, are really are really interesting to the whole story they add to saint anthony's story but you also see kind of the personal practice the personal devotion not so much focused on scripture uh, not so much focused on dogma more just being alone with god being alone with your thoughts and seeing what comes from that so always have a special place in my heart for the desert fathers especially saint anthony just because he has the most lore around him but the desert fathers in of themselves are all mystics um, and they all have unique stories. Someone asked what happens if you do not keep your bargain with a saint? Is anything bad going to happen? I talk about this in past Q&As. There's the concept of hot and cold saints. There's the concept that there are some saints that are cold. As in they're easy or cool is better than cold. So they're cool to work with. They're easy. If you don't give them your, what you promise them, it's no big deal. What you know, nothing bad's gonna happen. Maybe they might be hesitant to work with you again, but nothing bad's gonna happen. Then there's the concept of hot saints, where if you do not pay up, something bad will happen to you, your family, your house might catch on fire, that sort of thing. Frankly, I have difficulty in following that to a T because some saints, you go to some cultures, they'll say they're a hot saint. Some saints, are, they'll say, oh, that's a cold saint. St. Peter is a great example. 
There are some communities, they say that he is a hot saint. If you do not give him what you promised him in your bargain, your house is gonna catch on fire. However, there are also some cultures and communities where before working with St. Peter, you beat him with a broom because he's a cool saint and you need to rough him up a little bit for him to start working with you. And that goes into saint punishing, which we have talked about in numerous episodes. So uh, it's hard for me to really uh, talk about the validity of that also, it's hard for me to talk to the validity of that because I always have my offering ready uh, before I even do the working. So if I know I'm going to do a novena to St. Peter, St. Benedict, Joseph, Anthony, whoever, I have my, my promise already done. So if it's a monetary donation, I got it. I put the money in savings. If I said that I was going to bake him bread, I've got all the materials bought already before I even do the working. That way, I don't have to worry about not paying up. Of course, maybe you you said that you would pray a rosary every day for a month if they came through, or you're going to go volunteer if they come through. Well, make sure you do it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, if you're sick or something, yeah, don't do it. But you know, talk to the saint and say you're going to make it up, make it up to them soon. But come through. But always, 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 if you're going to give them something physical or make a donation in their name, just make sure you have it before you even do the working with them. That makes the most sense. Um, there are practitioners, though, that are going to say that some saints are going to completely fuck you up if you um, don't come through. That That's a very common belief. And I'm not saying it's not true. Uh, the saints I work with are pretty, pretty cool regardless. Um, if they were on a hot, cool spectrum, they would be on the cool spectrum. So personally... Um, I don't deal too much with saints that are often considered hot. I do work with Peter and that he's kind of a, it's kind of up in the air, whether he's a hot or a cool saint. For me, I see him as intense. I see him as vibrant. I see him as energetic, boisterous, but I don't see him as aggressive or um, assertive. Anthony of the Desert, who we just talked about, many people say that as a hot saint you don't mess with. Um, but regardless you don't have to worry about it if you're coming to them with a request that is sincere, that is um, something that you need, that is ultimately for the greater good of some kind. And yes, that does include asking for protection and justice if it is for the greater good. If you come to them with a with a with pure intentions and you have your offering already tucked away, so you don't have to worry about not coming through, you're going to be fine. All right, next question is, what are some psalms to break a hex? There are a few. I also believe you can likely just use a, any protective psalms. Um, so check out the protective psalms episode. However, one of the traditional psalms for breaking a hex, which I don't think I talk about in that episode, is Psalm 7. Um, so what you do is you pour holy water into a small bowl, and you repeat verse 1 through 10 four times. And after the prayers, rinse the hands in the water and pour it outside of your home. So that is Psalm 7, 1 through 10. Pour holy water into a small bowl. Repeat 1 through 10 four times. And then rinse your hands with the water and pour it outside your residence. And that psalm is all about deliverance, save you for, saving you from the, the spirits and the people that persecute you. Uh, you're afraid that those who persecute you are going to tear into your soul like a lion. But God will avenge you in his divine anger to protect you from evil spirits and break the hex and the curse. So Psalm 7, 1 through 10 over holy water is the way to go. All right, next question. How do you protect yourself against a spell backfiring? Um, 
You know, most of the stuff I've talked about on this podcast, you, I'm saying this hesitantly, you likely don't have to worry about a backfire unless you were summoning a spirit, unless you were summoning a demon, you're probably going to be okay. Um, and yes, uh, summoning a spirit and saint work are a little different. Um, you usually don't have to work with that. Uh, my, worry about that. Um, what I do is I do a, um, a ritual called Aspergis May where I sprinkle holy water um, around my home. I made a reel about it on Instagram. Or I, I sprinkle the holy water and say this prayer around the space I'm doing the working. I will wear any kind of protective amulets like my St. Michael or my St. Benedict. Um, I will wrap a, a, a rosary I use often around a candle, around if I'm working with a bowl, a jar, whatever, I put that around the bowl for protection. So really a lot of protection work. Um, a lot of what I talk about here, I, I don't really think you need to worry about something backfiring. It's just you have to worry about it not working out for you. Um, yes, there are things like uh, if you, there are these certain cultures and beliefs where, you know, if you if you wish someone harm, it's going to come back to you or threefold law and all that. That's not really my viewpoint in folk magic. Uh, more so, yes, you want to make sure you have right intention and right view in what you do. And maybe karmically, some things might come back to you. Um, however, that's only if you were doing something incredibly painful. And I would say that's not necessarily the result of just the spell or the working. That is probably also the manifestation of you holding so much resentment and anger within your heart that you need to work through. And that coming back to you might not be a spell backfiring, but it is the negativity that you hold in your heart manifesting as negativity in your life. So, <laughs> in short, if you're worrying about protection during a spell, a few things. Uh, I do a holy water sprinkling. Uh, basically, I, I pray the Aspergis May prayer while I sprinkle, sprinkle holy water. Uh, I ensure that I have protective amulets on me. I might pray for protection before doing the working. And that alone should help you. I know a lot of folk practitioners don't worry about like circle casting or anything like that for protection. Um, and I think you only really have to worry about backfiring if you're doing something baneful, but I also think that backfiring is likely not really the spell, it's something you are holding in your heart that you likely need to cleanse regardless. So I'll also make sure you are cleansed in some form before doing any kind of work, because that negativity could push itself up. All right, and the last question, I'm laughing because I wasn't aware that it's been two hours because I've been having fun answering all of your questions and this is your fault for giving me so many great questions to answer. I'll also be putting timestamps by each of these questions uh, so you can kind of jump right in and jump out as you deem fit. It's not going to look great for my Spotify listener retention stats, but that's not what I'm in this for. All right, so the last question is a fun one, and that is what kind of sacraments, blessings, and other general churchy things can you do on your own? This has been a topic that when I first started the podcast, I wanted to jump into. This has been something that has fascinated me for a long time because throughout the history of the church, it has varied. So that's really interesting to me because it showcases, when you dive into it, it showcases really what was the view of these things? Why did it suddenly become that laity couldn't do it? What were the political reasons? What were the spiritual reasons, if any? It also 
gives you a look at kind of the church's view on magic and also why they might be taking certain things away. So this is going to be its own episode. This is one of those episodes where I'm kind of like hesitant to really start on it because I know it's going to take a lot of work, research, and time, but it has to be done. So this one is one that I, I really want to do. And just side note, um, another one that I'm preparing that is just taking forever is going to be a rosary magic episode. And then a third I do want to just talk about religious trauma and all of that good stuff. So those three episodes are ones that I keep putting off because I'm intimidated. So uh, an episode fully on what you can and cannot bless yourself is in the pipeline. But let's chat about it. So let's talk about all the different sacraments and let, let's kind of attack attack it that way and then talk about what the general at least catholic teaching is and even what it used to be so we're going to start with the ritual of exorcism actually and you'll see why i want to start with this one so back in the day medieval times anyone could perform an exorcism anyone could cast out demons and that's actually in scripture and in the bible uh, anyone can cast out demons in jesus's name if they have faith within it. That is why the Catholic Church does not claim that they are the only people that can do exorcisms. Um, the Catholic Church says, yes, Protestants can also you know, cast out demons. It's not just a church thing. So they used to, the laity, anyone could do that and it was very common. That is also why you have folk magic practices um, going back centuries and centuries and like kind of family traditions around casting out evil and demons. And it was because many, many centuries ago, uh, families could cast out demons uh, that were afflicting people, afflicting livestock, afflicting homes, things of that nature. So essentially as a power grab, as a power move to try and build more reverence and get the clergy more involved in the community. Also concerns of people messing up exorcisms and then becoming possessed. The church said, no, only we can do it. And I believe that was somewhat good intentioned. Uh, however, there still is a, a teaching today, and this is why I'm bringing up exorcisms first. There still is a teaching today that while the laity, while you cannot say, I cast you out demon, you can pray over a person that might be afflicted by a demon by saying, God, will you please cast out this demon? So you are not casting out the demon, you are asking God to do it. So you, any one really can use a what's called a supplicatory prayer to ask God to do it. Um, and the a very common example of that is deliverance prayers where you can pray over someone asking God to uh, remove the demons from them. If you want a cool caveat, because yes, we're also going to do an episode on deliverance and exorcisms. A uh, caveat there though is that if it's your wife, husband, or child, you can say, I cast you out, demon, because um, since they are your family, you all have domain over one another. Or, well, the children don't over the parents, but the parents will go over the children. Um, regardless, the point I want to get across here is that, according to church teaching, you can bless someone, you can cast out a demon as long as you ask God to do it, and that goes for anything. So basically, to answer the bigger question here of what can you do on your own, well, if you're asking God to do it, you can do a lot of this stuff. The efficacy might be in question. 
but if you are asking God to do it, you can do it. Um, and that is why if you guys have watched my lives or if you're in my Patreon, you have access to my Holy Water Blessing, you will see that all I've done was I've taken the Roman ritual and in the one or two places where it says I bless this water and I cast out the demons of the salt and of the water, I just change it to may God. And that's it. That's the only thing I've changed. Um, and that is because church teaching says that you can um, bless things as long as you're asking God to do it. You can also bless things you have domain over and water, candles, your home, your family, your pets. You have domain over those things, so why not? Then the caveat comes when they say that, well, if you're using it as a sacramental, you can't do it. However, there's that contradictory statement, though, because, well, what if you're asking God to do it rather than you do it? So um, if you are wanting to cast a demon out of a place or out of a friend, loved one, you can do it as long as you are asking God to do it or praying to God that they will do it. Not only God, a saint or Mary will work as well though God, Jesus, Mary are, are the ones you want to talk to. And then there are certain other sacraments where the analogy often given is it's like driving a car without a license. Can you do it? Yes, but it might be unsafe. If you haven't been trained in how to drive a car, if you haven't passed the proper safety tests and whatnot, you can still do it, but it might not be advised. So there's stuff like that as well. Um, and I think certain kind of deliverance prayers might not actually fall into that category. When I say deliverance, I mean casting out demons. Um, but other examples of that would be baptism. It is actually, in the eyes of the church, um, any baptized person can baptize another. However, the caveat is usually only in times of emergency. The person is sick, the person is dying, you are fearful that you're in a situation where the person may not make it. My little brother was actually very sick as a baby, uh, so my grandmother baptized him uh, because the priest couldn't get there in time. My, my brother is now in his 30s, nothing bad happened there. But my grandmother did it and then later he was baptized in the church um so the baptism in the church is really so that they can continue receiving sacraments in the church uh, but really anyone can baptize another that is why you see in a lot of protestant circles you know it's not always the preacher it's just someone else from the church it's it could even be a relative i would say the only thing that would give me pause about what to do on your own would be blessing the eucharist and doing the transubstantiation, making the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. That is one where I would be hung up on, and that is because priests and clergy have been initiated into that practice. And if we are to be good practitioners, and this isn't, this isn't appropriation, so I'm not going down that path, it's more respect. Um, if you know you don't want to partake in something if you have not been properly initiated and priests have been properly initiated into being a priest and into the blessings and the knowledge of being able to transubstantiate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. So the Eucharist, I would not do it. However, let's go back. What I said earlier is anyone can bless anything they have um, domain over. There's nothing to say that you cannot pray or bless your bread and bless your wine and use that in ceremonies, rituals, and whatnot. 
Um, there is a, a wine blessing. I actually do it. Uh, I had a bonus episode where I do it. There's a bread blessing as well. Um, and also, if you are using it in some kind of devotion, adoration type type situation, like there are novenas to the precious blood of Christ. There are novenas to the five wounds of Christ, uh, where you meditate on the, the blood and the, and the five wounds. So let's say you want to end the ritual of, or the novena of the, um, the precious blood by drinking blessed wine or the bread and uh, breath <laughs> blessed bread and wine uh to to honor jesus so bless your own bread and wine so there's a difference between it being blessed and it becoming the body and blood through transubstantiation and i do not think that um that would be offensive by blessing your own wine and, and putting a blessing over your bread it could be something as simple as you know, yes, you could follow the actual Roman ritual, the actual Roman uh, blessing for wine and bread, because there is a separate one. So there is the actual Eucharistic blessing that only a priest can do, but there is blessings. And my kind of theory is you can do it as long as you ask God to do it. That's my loophole. But it could be something you create as well. You know, God, I am looking to drink this wine in remembrance of your son to, to become closer to him. God, I'm looking, may you please bless this wine. May you please, please bless this bread as well. Blessed bread is, is tripping me up today. Can you please bless this bread as well so I can eat it and, and remember your son this evening? So I wouldn't do the transubstantiation since you're not initiated into that, but I would still um, bless a bread and wine if you want to do that. Again, anything can be blessed as long as you ask God to do it. Though I would not discount the power and the efficacy of having a priest bless something. Yes, I have spoken about things before like how I bless my own holy water because when I bring holy water to a priest, they just do a sign of the cross and they're done. Whereas the old Roman ritual, you exercise the salt, you exercise the water, you blend them together, you say a prayer. And to me, there's just more magic and energy and power into it. However, I still think there's something special, powerful, and loving about having a priest bless something for you. All of my St. Benedict medals, I have blessed at a local uh, Benedictine monastery. Um, someone talked about confession and how it's a weird thing telling a priest your sins, and I agree. But what I like about confession, yes, I guess you could say there is a therapeutic uh, kind of thing going on with confession. Um, also, the concept of sin, I think, in the Roman Catholic Church versus the Eastern Catholic Church varies. Eastern Catholic Church would be more like sin is more of a blockage from um, you connecting with God more fully rather than a, a checklist that you need to apologize for. So having a priest pray over you that your blockages may be cleared, I think is beautiful. So I think having a priest still bless things is, is a great and beautiful, powerful ritual. So don't discount that. Though I also think <laughs> that is very powerful to bless your own things. So look into the blessings and the rituals of certain objects. There are many candle blessings that are really cool because basically you are asking the candle to um, cast any demons in the air away. Uh, there are of course, holy water blessings. There are many you can find. I use the one that's pre-Vatican II. Um, I actually have a blessing of a bell 
So anytime I'm cleansing a room, I ring the bell and that bell has been blessed. So it will purify your home. Um, so I think as a folk magic practitioner, really, you just need to worry about the blessing stuff. Um, that's, that's the stuff you're going to need the most. And that's the stuff you can't do on your own. Um, yeah, if you want to baptize someone, I guess you can. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't touch the Eucharist because that is an initiatory practice for a priest. A confession, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that, but I would. I would bless someone. I think that's um, that's a really loving thing to do. All right, I have almost talked for two and a half hours. If you're still here and you've listened to all of it, you are a champ, and I appreciate you. Let's end with some bibliomancy. So I'm going to take my psalm book and I'm just going to stop at a page, run my finger around the page, and then I'm going to stop on a verse. And if that verse speaks to you, then beautiful. Let's do it. All right. I'm doing this in the microphone so you can know I'm doing it. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusts in you. In the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Psalm 57. To ease the loss of a love, to ease your mind, or to receive mercy from God. Psalm 57, verse 1. All right, thank you for another very long episode of St. Anthony's Tongue. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hanging out with me. And thank you for all of your incredible, incredible questions and for all of your amazing fellowship. Thank you for listening. And may God bless you all.